Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord of truth. Psalm 31.5 Welcome to the Into Your Hand podcast with Brendan and Wesley. Today we are discussing the Sabbath School Bible Study for January 30th, 2021. This quarter is entitled Isaiah. This week's lesson is entitled Noble Prince of Peace. The memory verse this week is Isaiah 9.6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. A special thank you to Fountain View Academy for giving us permission to share their music ministry with you. Links to Fountain View Academy are in the description. God bless you all. Thy blood doth impart.
Father, thank you for your grace and eternal love. Thank you for providing for us and watching over the sick. We pray your son comes soon to take us home. May we be full of faith. Increase our trust in you. Bless us with repentance and the Holy Spirit. May we be witnesses for you and bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's great to gather again tonight, studying the lesson, Noble Prince of Peace. And just to repeat our Bible verse, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Soon come that day. That will be a wonderful government to live under, where every law is one of truth and love that lives in our hearts. It's been inscribed on there ever since we gave our hearts to God. Our lesson starts off with an unusual story about Robert Oppenheimer, who supervised the creation of the first atomic bomb. And it was asked of him if there were any defense against the weapon. Certainly, the great physicist replied, and that is, Dr. Oppenheimer looked over at the audience and said softly, peace. In fact, nuclear weapons haven't been used tremendously in the world, and thank God for that. The death toll initially and the fallout is a horrific thing to see. During the Cold War, the U.S. and the Soviet Union had a standoff in which there was relative peace in regards to nuclear armaments. 
when there is this uh, tremendous pressure upon the world, not only of governments and weaponry and wars and, and all of this type of stuff, when sin is the driving force that pushes the human heart away from God and into the realm of Satan's playground, then war and hatred are the natural result. There's one other thing that sin manifests that doesn't look like outright war or the absence of peace, but it's the premise of unity under a guise of goodness. And we hear this a lot and see this a lot amongst groups that claim to be for the rights of man, yet when they take action, they do so in a violent way. Their methods are not that of the wonderful counselor, but they are those of violence and further oppression. They see systems in place in which it's one group against another, and they feel justified in the overthrow, whatever that may entail. So we need to be careful not only to be peacemakers when it comes to issues of a national scale or international uh, conflicts. Many Adventists have been conscientious objectors in the past, such as my grandfather, who was an x-ray tech in World War II. He did not carry a gun or hurt anyone. He just helped people. I believe that is a good position to take. But also in our modern society, as the political agendas are pushed heavily, we need to be careful not to be caught up in a group that claims unity and justice for all while destroying the united front of Christ's work amongst his people. It's difficult to draw that line sometimes, but we can always come back to the word. And we should really strive to be in a community of believers that understand the full nature of Christ's mission and how he dealt with oppression during the time of the Romans. The people of Israel, the people in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, they understood oppression, but Christ's mission was to transform the heart, to change people and how they lived and acted. And that's still his mission now, person by person. So let's think about that when it comes to the issue of peace. Let's look to the only one who brings true everlasting peace, and that is Jesus Christ. Amen. When you talked about the government of God, I felt a little homesick, even though I've never been to heaven before. Uh, made me think of being homesick. And um, your comments on unity are, are definitely right on. It reminds me of Egypt and Babylon, actually. In Egypt, we have the Pharaoh saying, who is God that I should listen to him? And then the Israelites had to leave the land. It was the wrong place for them. And then also uh, we have Babylon, who after the an example of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they decreed that people had to honor the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I think that was also wrong. So we're not supposed to be on either camp of those. We should be in a peaceful middle ground. I think I like what Jesus said, like, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And we should be completely God's uh, property. 
Moving on to Sunday's lesson, do you have a verse to share with us? Uh, the Sunday's lesson is entitled End of Gloom for Galilee, Isaiah 9, 1 to 5. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. The lesson brings out a couple of points here. First, it says the people of the Galilee region are singled out here as receiving a special blessing of a great light because they were also the first area that was destroyed by the Assyrians. They are being specially signaled out here as receiving this light. Also, Jesus's early ministry was in the Galilee region. The question I have is, if someone were to ask you, what has Jesus delivered you from, what would you answer? What personal testimony can you give regarding the power of Christ in your life? Well, the most important thing, I think, is to be broken from a desire for worldly gain and for sin. That process can be a bit long at times because of the hardness of my heart, but I pray that the Holy Spirit work on me and change me each day to follow him more closely to live according to his word and to be transformed in my spirit. I've also been blessed in ways of a miraculous intervention in which I would have died if I hadn't listened to the voice of God. And for those times also, I'm very appreciative of the love that he showed to me. I don't feel deserving, but he intervened in a time that I would have surely died. So in those two ways, one which is continual, that transformation which I desire so greatly, and also those moments of salvation that I was saved physically have really impacted my life. Yes. How about you? It's not easy for me to answer, but I have had events in my life where that were scary. And by the grace of God, I have endured. God still wants me to be alive. I've had a difficult life caused by my own mistake and decisions. And I take hope and, and faith in, in God's redemptive power to ride a sinking ship and plug the holes. And like you said about uh, sin, I feel blessed to really have a desire for God that we really all need to have. We all go through different experiences Something has to happen in our hearts and our minds that just clicks, that we realize that there's got to be more to life than seeking every temporary high. And I praise the Lord that I came to that decision, that I need God active in my life every day. And like you, I'm, I'm just growing, I'm praying for the Holy Spirit to continue to change my life and, 
and heal me of sin and change my character. One thing also I think that we should all pray for is that we have the the desire, the choice, and the action to make a change in our life before we're brought to our knees in under the crushing weight of the sin itself. True. We hear testimonies often of people who have gone to the full length of sin in some regard, vice, or something like that, and how that broke them and then brought them to Christ. And that's great that they came to Christ, but we should pray that those things in our lives that we may be holding on to and we shouldn't be, we don't have to come to that point of complete destruction because it's very hard to get back from that emotionally and mentally and economically and physically and spiritually. Let's come now and fall on our knees, not under the crushing weight of sin, but under a contrite spirit of repentance and have Christ lift us up at this moment before we do a lot of damage to our lives. Right. That's so true. And I think, you know, once you've experienced a kind of low points and being somewhat crushed, you just don't want to go through that again. There's a certain fear in, in being away from God at that point, knowing what God has done to redeem us and to lift that burden in economics and health. Without God, I don't know what evil could happen tomorrow or tonight, and I definitely don't want to go through tomorrow without him. There's one other illustration that came to mind over the last few days, and that sometimes when sin encompasses our lives, it it sometimes doesn't crush us initially, but it makes us numb, numb to the further effect of sin and numb to the love and grace of God. This can be seen illustrated in a physical nature with Naaman. Naaman had leprosy. And just like the nerves of his hands and his feet and throughout his body were dying, it can be that same way with sin in our lives and that it becomes normalized to the point that we don't feel anymore. But when we listen to God, when we come to the river and when we dip seven times in living water, we can be healed. We can be restored to a heart of flesh in tune with the Father's will and longing for the love of God. I think of that story often, how he went down once and twice and three times, and he was still, he still had leprosy. He still couldn't feel, but he moved on in faith. And after the seventh time, he came up restored. So God desires that restoration in us. Let's move on to Monday's lesson. Do we have a Bible passage to read? Uh, this Monday's lesson is entitled, A Child for Us, and it says Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Uh, this is a very famous verse about Jesus, but you may not have heard it in this version before. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Monday's lesson talks about Jesus, our deliverer, 
and references other texts how this is fulfilled in Christ. Praise the Lord. There's a quote here from Selected Messages. When Christ came to our world, Satan was on the ground and disputed every inch of advance in his path from the manger to Calvary. Satan had accused God of requiring self-denial of the angels when he knew nothing of what it meant himself. And when he would not himself make any self-sacrifice for others, this was the accusation that Satan made against God in heaven. And after the evil one was expelled from heaven, he continually charged the Lord that with exacting service, which he would not render himself, Christ came to the world to meet these false accusations and to reveal the Father. That's like the great controversy explained in one short paragraph that Jesus came. The war in heaven had not fully ended. There were still accusations. There were still arguments in that war of ideas, and Christ came and settled them once and for all. God's ultimate love, instead of destroying all of us, he came and died for us. And we do have free will that we need to exercise in seeking the Lord to change our hearts and minds and to realize God's true character. The last The question on the bottom of Monday's lesson says, what does this quote tell us about the character of God? What amazing love, what amazing compassion. The whole government of heaven was at stake and Christ would not let that stand. Do you have any comments on Monday's lesson? Well, that Satan's accusation was that God required of the angels certain things, but we see Christ taking up that yoke of responsibility for his very own creation and coming to earth incarnate and living as a man perfect and giving himself as sacrifice. So not only was sin forgiven by the blood on the cross, not only was it proven that man could live a holy life according to God's law, not only was it shown that God can have an intimate and personal relationship with us, but that main accusation that God requires but does not do was overcome by Jesus Christ. Satan was proved the liar that he is because Christ came and Christ did. And because of him, we are saved. Let's move on to Tuesday's lesson, the rod of God's anger. Isaiah 9, 8 and all of chapter 10, verse 8. The Lord sends a message against Jacob and it falls on Israel and all the people know it. That is Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, asserting in pride and in arrogance of heart. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore, the Lord rises against them adversaries from resin and spurs their enemies on. The Armenians on the east and the Philistines on the west and they devour Israel with gaping jaws. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. Yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cuts off head and tail from Israel, both palm branch and bulrush in a single day. The head is the elder and honorable man, and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tale. For those who guide this people are leading them astray, 
and those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. Therefore, the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it even sets the thickets of the forest aflame, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. By the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No man spares his brother. They slice off what is on the right hand, but still are hungry, and they eat what is on the left hand, but they are not satisfied. Each of them eats the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim and Ephraim Manasseh. And together they are against Judah. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. Woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights so that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. Now, what will you do in the day of punishment and in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives, to fall among the slain. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, Are not my princes all kings? Is not Kalno like Charchemesh, or Hamath like Arpad, or Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images, just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this. For I have understanding and I have removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth. And there was not one that flapped its wings or opened its beak or chirped. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the God of the host, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors, 
and under his glory a fire will be kindled like a burning flame, and the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in a single day, and he will destroy the glory of his forest and his and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away, and the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. Now, in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord of God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod or lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did. For in a very little while, my indignation against you will be spent and my anger will be directed to their destruction. The Lord of hosts will arouse a scourge against him like the slaughter of Midian in the rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it up and the way he did in Egypt. So it will be in that day that his burden will be removed from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of fatness. He has come against Ayath. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he deposited his baggage. They have gone through the pass saying, Giba will be our lodging place. Rama is terrified and the Gibeah of Saul has fled away. Cry aloud with your voice, O daughter of Gilam. Pay attention, Laisha and wretched Anathoth. Madamana has fled. The inhabitants of Gebim have sought refuge. Yet today he will halt at Nob. He, he shakes his fist at the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash. Those who are tall in stature will be cut down, and those who are lofty will be abased. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. I got two things out of it, especially. Number one is that they are scared of Assyria. But he is saying that the arrogance of Assyria must be brought low, that God has built up Assyria for a purpose. And he has allowed Assyria to bring the destruction, the punishment that is required to bring repentance upon the people, to urge them to see that the course that they are taking is self-destruction. And Israel, the northern kingdom, is ultimately not spared. But in that arrogance that the king of Assyria has, the judgment that is coming on Jerusalem and on Judah and on Israel for their sins and arrogance and idolatry. This passage is promising that the same punishments must be given to Assyria. It's almost comical that he's saying here that God is wielding this weapon 
and yet the weapon is claiming to be God. The weapon is claiming that it is doing this itself. And God is not going to allow that to stand. And then the promise comes that a remnant will be preserved. The faithful remnant will ultimately be preserved. And it must be preserved under the onslaught of the devil. It must be preserved because Christ hasn't come yet. And Christ must be a child of Abraham, a child of the house of David. It has been prophesied. It's been promised. And that promise must be kept. Right. In the middle section on Tuesday's lesson, if God had wanted to destroy his people, he could have given them up to the Assyrians right away. Mm. But just as we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So some of the lessons that Israel and Judah learned were harsh ones. When God pulled back his protecting hand and allowed nations to overcome them, and by that purified them unto a remnant. We saw that with Babylon as well. I also like the section at the bottom of the page. God seeks to woo us by revealing his love and character. He also will allow us to face the fruit of our wrong decisions, pain, suffering, fear, turmoil, and so forth, all in order to help us realize just what turning away from him leads to. So the lessons that we face, just as the people of Israel and Judah did, can be harsh at times, but he is wanting to lead us to repentance and wanting to establish us in a loving relationship with him and for his character to be manifest in us. It must be true that the problems that come upon us is due to the great controversy It is due to our own failed decision-making, you know, where we actively choose sin and associate with a wrong crowd or whatever that, that brings our downfall and brings problems upon us. So is there a time when God is not directing the problems that come upon us? Like we are in a sinful world, sin is all around us. So problems will just naturally arise. Some people argue that way. And I wonder that God is going to direct in that way and say, okay, we are in a sinful world. Sinful things are going to happen to us around us. Problems are going to come. Stresses are going to come. And yet God says, okay, I'm not going to allow that stress to come upon him. But maybe that other one Satan wants to do, that one I can teach him with. because." We see in Job, we see the free will that God gives this world and also to Satan and how it is metered out in a way. This comment is interesting because it it brings up the question of why do bad things happen to good people, right? And I think we've discussed it before. I'm wondering if at all times, the problems that come upon us, God measures it and, and determines what we can handle, right? I think that Job's case is one that is unique. I don't think that Satan is going back and forth to God and getting permission to destroy our lives. We know that God sends his angels to watch over us. We know that God intervenes at times. We know that God speaks to his people, sometimes directly, sometimes through the prophets, always through the scripture. Yes. And through the Holy Spirit moving upon our consciences and our hearts. 
in accordance to the word. So in the large ways of spiritual adaptation and growth, he definitely works with us always. And sometimes we're under attack by temptation or by persecution. And I'm sure that God is with us during those times as well. But I'm always wary to take it to the extreme of the minuscule, because I feel that it can belittle God, and it also puts us in a place of being sort of like self-fortune tellers. Let me just give you an example. Okay. Um, I've heard a woman say, that car moved out of that parking space, the third one from the front door of the supermarket, and it was because of God's will. That was not revealed to her in the scripture by the Holy Spirit or by some kind of prophetic intervention. Right. She just made it up. Right. And by doing so, at least to me, it feels like she's belittling God. Yes, God does care for us. He loves us dearly. But I don't think that we should take the mundane and make it extravagant. Because there's so much good that God does in our lives. So much good that he does in our lives that let's stand upon the word of God. Let's stand upon true testimony. Let's walk in the faith. We don't need to be picking up little tiny things of dust and pretending that they're gems when God has placed rubies and diamonds in our hands of spiritual understanding and application. I I completely agree with that. I'm just, this passage just brings out the question of, You know, why do bad things happen to good people or, you know, does every bad thing that happens, you know, what's the explanation for it? And sometimes we don't know, you know, is it just Satan attacking us? Is it some lesson God is teaching? Is it just the world we live in, in the great controversy, just, you know, the world's a mess. Is it also, you know, always we must think about our own problems by our own cultivated tendencies to sin and our lust driving us to sin. And then the results of that can be devastating. And we can't chalk that up to, you know, well, Satan did this to me or God did this or something like that. When, you know, it was the result of our own bad decision-making. People look at the Job story and they look at this kind of quote and they want to know like, how active is God in their life? And did this bad thing happen to me? You know, why did this bad thing happen to me? Ultimately, we're going to vindicate what we've been taught. And that is at the right hand of God, if we saw our life, we would not change anything. And that God ran it perfectly. God did everything right. We're going to get to heaven and we're going to see our life that God didn't fail us at any moment. If we're honest with ourselves, Even right now, we can look back on our lives and say that if I had followed God more closely, a lot of the stuff or almost all of the stuff that has happened in my life that's been bad is because of the bad choice that I made. Definitely true in my case. (laughs) I can definitely say that. You know, they say hindsight is 20-20, but I really think it takes a humble and contrite spirit for that to be true. Because an arrogant man will look back into the past and blame the circumstance, will blame another person. It's their fault. It's her fault. Those are the things that happened to me. It's not because of me. That's the, that's the prideful arrogance that is self-destruction because that same person who blames others 
will take the next step forward in their life and do the same mistakes that they did before. And they'll still blame the next person in line. Right. So answering the question, how active is God in our lives? He's as active as we allow him to be, as we invite him to be. We need to come before him daily and commit our lives to him and not just lay our plans before the cross and have him bless what we want to do, but lay ourselves open before him and say, Heavenly Father, what do you want me to do? Guide me in a way that I may advance your kingdom and that I may grow personally and spiritually. Right. Very good. Amen to that. Looking at Wednesday's lesson, root and branch in one. Isaiah chapter 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge but what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand, the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pethros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not harass Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west. Together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom and Moab and the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of of Egypt. And he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching wind. And he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel in that day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. I like to think of the ancestry of Christ and the amazing way that 
some people were part of his ancestry, such as Rahab in Jericho. Mm-hmm. I always find that interesting how certain people that you wouldn't expect to be in the genealogy are there. This illustration here of a branch or a shoot coming out of the stump, one thing that seemingly has no life left in it, yet a shoot comes out. Mm. And I used to go hiking on Mount Meru, which is a a fairly tall mountain, about 15,000 feet, right near the city of Arusha in Tanzania, where I lived. And sometimes I would see the eucalyptus trees that had been cut down and a shoot coming out of the side of new growth. And that is, that's hope. The roots are still down there. They're still tapped into that nutrition and the plant is still alive. The tree is going to grow again. As that is illustrated in nature, what greater hope did they have of the coming Messiah coming out of the lineage of David and his kingdom? And we know that Christ will come again and he will be on the throne. He will be victorious and he will reign over his kingdom. Amen. Thursday's lesson uh, is entitled, You Comforted Me. And it tells us to read Isaiah 12, which is uh, six short verses. Isaiah 12. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. It also tells us to read, to compare this with Revelation 15, verse 2 to 4. I think it quotes it, actually, if I'm not mistaken. Revelation 15, 2 to 4. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not hear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Yeah, I particularly like that verse. Um, There's a contemporary Christian group called Petra who has a song called the Song of Moses, and it quotes that. Beautiful. Not only does the Lord bestow salvation, but he himself is our salvation. His name denotes salvation. So Yeshua, which is the shortened version of Yehoshua, which in English we call Joshua, uh, literally means salvation. But in Hebrew, just that word salvation alone must include the idea that Yehovah is salvation, because there's no other salvation. 
except from our Heavenly Father. And that's something I think that we should really internalize. As this world turns in turmoil and people are looking left, right, up, down, and center for salvation from seeming danger, we need to understand that there's no other salvation except from our Heavenly Father by Jesus Christ. That statement does not neglect the practicality of understanding. I think it is encompassing of our health message. It's important for us to realize the full scope that God wants for our lives. And health of body and mind and spirit are all tied together. So we shouldn't be looking to political leaders. We shouldn't be looking to doctors. We need to be understanding the nature of our place in God's kingdom, serving him truly and applying health principles in our lives right now. As people are running to and fro or hunkered down in their their dwelling places, we need to really live rightly according to God's word. The bottom of Thursday's lesson, it says, dwell more on this idea that Jesus is our salvation. And this is what you're touching on. It says, read Romans 3, 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. It says that redemption is in Jesus. Redemption is something that happened in him, and it is through God's grace and mercy that we can have an eternal share in that redemption as well. In other words, that redemption that was in him can become ours by faith and not by works, because no works we do are good enough to redeem us. Only the works that Christ did, which he credits to us by faith, can bring redemption. How does this truth give you hope and assurance of salvation, especially when you feel overwhelmed by your own sense of unworthiness? I think that at the end of our lives, at the end of this time period of turmoil and persecution, the righteous of Christ stand pure. They are not just purified symbolically. They're not just purified because of what Christ did before on the cross, but they're purified together with Christ. He is working in each believer to bring about a transformative change that leads to righteousness. The same Holy Spirit that worked on you to lead you to that point of conviction and of repentance and of baptism, that same Spirit is working in you today. And at every crossroads, We have a choice to make and an action to take. And the more and more we walk closer to Christ, the more we are purified. My duty as a Christian is to surrender to the leading of God. Absolutely. To surrender everything. And then God will work through me by changing my character. And not only my character, but changing who I am. And the motives in which I operate. We have a couple of quotes on Friday's lesson. The heart of the human father yearns over his son. He looks into the face of his little child and trembles at the thought of life's peril. He longs to shield his dear one from Satan's power, to hold him back from temptation and conflict, to meet a bitterer conflict and a more fearful risk. God gave his only begotten son that the path of life might be made sure for our little ones. Herein is love, 
Wonder, O heavens, and be astonished, O earth, taken from the desire of ages. And also one other quote from the Signs of the Times. Christ was the one who consented to meet the conditions necessary for man's salvation. No angel, no man was sufficient for the great work to be wrought. The Son of Man alone must be lifted up, for only an infinite nature could undertake the redemptive process. Christ consented to connect himself with the disloyal and sinful, to partake of the nature of man, to give his own blood, and to make his soul an offering for sin. In the councils of heaven, the guilt of man was measured. The wrath for sin was estimated, and yet Christ announced his decision that he would take upon himself the responsibility of meeting the conditions whereby hope should be extended to a fallen race. And thus we see the love of God manifest through Christ. Amen. The summary states, in the days of Isaiah, whose name means salvation of the Lord, God promised his remnant people salvation from the oppression that was coming upon them as a result of national apostasy. This prophecy of hope finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, whose name means the Lord is salvation. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the life that he lived, the sacrifice that he gave, the power of the blood to cleanse us from sin. And Heavenly Father, we thank you tremendously for sending the Holy Spirit to come and live in these temples. May your presence be made known to us. May we recognize your spirit in us. May we see those things in our lives that need to be left by the wayside. And when our hands and our feet and even our souls may become numb, we ask you for that cleansing water, that living water, and for us to be baptized in that. As Naaman was restored with seven dips in the river, may your spirit overflow our lives. May we become sensitive to the sins of our lives. And may you lead us on paths of righteousness for your honor and glory. We long for your kingdom to come and your will to be done in this world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening. Please click the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. Bible readings taken from the NASB are copyrighted by the Lockman Foundation.